When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Inside F1 with Joe Sayward. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanner. So let's be friends here on Missed Apex. We bring you a variety of voices, drivers, journalists, statisticians, presenters and pundits. And king amongst them all, certainly in experience wise, a person who has been to every single Grand Prix since 1988. It's the infamous Joe Sayward. How's it going, Joe? Hello. Yes, all is well. I've just come back from Monza, which was yesterday. I got back, so um, yes, everything's fine. It's been I've been away from home for much of the last three weeks, going to uh, Belgium and Holland and Italy, and uh, now I'm having some time off because thankfully they cancelled the Russian Grand Prix, and I don't have to do anything for two weeks, which is a real luxury. Now, put your feet up. Uh, you live in France, but your experiences in the paddock mean that you're never alone. Is there anyone now where you think, oh, actually, I don't know them that well? Because there's a few new kids like Seidel and and Jos Capito. Well, is, is, it, is it hard when new team managers come in as a journalist? Mm, yes, it is. But it's um, <clears throat> in the case of um, Capito, he was there 20 years ago. So I know him from that. Um uh, sidely, yes, he doesn't know me. He doesn't, you know, we, you've got to build up relationships and that takes time. But in terms of um, the people in the paddock, it, there's been enormous changes since mm. the pandemic. So there's huge numbers of people I don't know. And also we, were, we weren't allowed into the motorhome, so you'd get to, to meet fewer people. So yeah. there's lots and lots of people. It's quite disconcerting, actually, because, um, you know, after a while, and so you have to sort of go through the process of learning all new names and people. Yeah, and I guess you've had to do that loads and loads of times because you've done it for such a long time. I suppose so, but the the sort of um, 
the lifetime members of Formula One uh, who I've been, you know, I've known for 30 odd years or more. Um, you know, they are, a, a, the group is thinning out, but it's still a solid group and they're all in quite important jobs these days. How um, much? Most of, of them. Yeah. How much of the social aspect do you, do you get to get involved in? Cause I've only had one experience of being in the paddock club and there's lots of like F1 royalty and dignitaries and people who have like lifetime passes to the paddock. Do, do you ever get involved in any of, any of that? Do you ever sup some champagne with the stars? No, no. not really. Oh, um, Joe. Occasionally, well, we don't do much of that because we work a lot. Oh, what no. a waste! There, there is a big myth about people going on holiday and having parties all the time. Yeah. It's not like that at all. Um, you know, I work. I never go out on Saturday nights or Sunday nights because I'm working on both. And um, Friday nights, Thursday nights, occasionally, we'll have some fun. But um, it depends who's busy. I mean, everyone's everyone's busy. We're just busy at different things. Yeah. So, um, and when you do have sort of uh sponsor events they're fairly well orchestrated and usually the stars will pop in for like three minutes <laughs> say the right thing and then leave because they don't want to spend their time hanging out with us you know so um that's just the way it is but you know what the the, the value of being around a long time is you get to talk to people around the back of the motorhomes and, and you whisper secrets to each other and you find out what's going on so well chris medlin said it was non-stop jaeger bombs so maybe you just don't get invited, Joe. Must be it. Well, Chris Medland is a youngster, <laughs> and um, he doesn't work as hard as I do. So, uh, you know. <gasps> Shots fired. Shots fired. Okay, we, let's get straight into our listener mailbag. We've got some great questions, and the first one is from Ida Lazanda, Lozada, I beg your pardon, who says, my question to Joe is Antonio Perez Grebe, Sergio Perez's dad, is promoting the organisation of a new Grand Prix in Mexico at Cancun. How realistic is the chances of said race and which other countries and cities are looking to get into F1? Another destination Grand Prix, Joe? Well, I mean, there's a theory that it might be a good idea. Um, the race in Mexico City has got a new contract recently, so there won't be two races in Mexico because Sergio is not good enough for that. <laughs> um, and uh, sorry, boo, sorry, Perez. Perez. <laughs> sorry, Perez fans, but that's the reality of it. Um, so if the Mexico City people don't want to do it, maybe we could go to Cancun, but it's a big old, it's a big ask and it's a lot of organization to do. And if it's a street track, mm. which it would be, uh, you've got to get everyone to agree to, and it's taken Formula One many years to get Las Vegas sorted out. So Cancun might be a good idea. They also have more storms in Cancun. I seem to remember lots of sort of hurricanes and things coming in, which is never a good plan. No. But for the moment, there's no serious possibility, but maybe in five years time. But I think in five years' time, Sergio probably won't be there anymore. No, so. no up and coming Mexican youngsters coming through the ranks. Not that I've spotted. Although there's a man called Villa Gomez who I believe owns half of Mexico, and he crashes every other weekend in Formula Three. In fact, he crashes twice every weekend, um, most of the time. But he does own a lot of Mexico, so he's jolly wealthy. Ah. So they tell me. I, I I have not seen anything yet that makes me think he's going to be a mega star. So but you're not. Apart from yeah. Apart from crashing a lot. So you're not optimistic like uh, like we were being at the weekend that perhaps the, the dawn of the the pay driver is kind of disappearing a little bit in F1 with the franchise model that perhaps they wanted to kind of phase that out a bit. No, no, no. The, 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 I mean, wealthy drivers have advantages. Wealthy drivers can go on crashing a lot um, and, and learning the way. And they can then, they, they, they have to earn their super license points and that shouldn't be changed. We don't want 
people who are there because they've got money. Now, you can't negate the power of money, but you can mean you, you can have a situation where they have to be good enough to get through to a super license. Now, right now, Colton Herder hasn't got one. And everyone goes, oh, isn't it a shame? Well, I'm sorry, but Colton Herder hasn't done the results necessary. Um, he finished 10th in the championship in IndyCar. You know, he, he's, he, he may not be a driver god. I mean, there's a, some sort of a, a, a sort of uh, tub thumping crew out there somewhere who is who is saying that Colton Hurt is the best thing since sliced bread. But um, you know, let's let's see the proof of it. And when he, when we got the proof of it, um, then he can have a super license because he'll earn it. But you know, right now Logan Sargent, who is the American in Formula Two, is far closer to a super license. And apart from the fact he's had three bad weekends in a row, um, you know, he looks pretty good. That leads us really nicely onto our next question, actually, Joe, as if you were some kind of savant. Uh, Ken March has written in and says, I've greatly appreciated your journalism, Joe. I'm sure he means you, not me. Uh, For more seasons than I care to admit, I really enjoy these episodes with Spanners as well on the podcast. My understanding is that Aston Martin has just signed their very first junior driver, and I was surprised that they already didn't have a junior programme. In the context of Alpine losing their top junior driver to McLaren, Helmut Marco looking outside to IndyCar to Colton Herter uh, to potentially fill a seat. My question is, what's the general status of various F1 teams' junior programs? Stay well and kind regards from Ken March, a quiet patron, he says. Um, that's a great question. What is the state of the junior programs? Well, the Red Bull junior program has got lots of drivers in it, and most of them seem to be messing up. Um, for different reasons, Yuri Vips got himself into all kinds of trouble for opening his mouth. Uh, the others are either too wild or not wild enough. We've got, uh, I think there's four of them, maybe five in Formula Two at the moment, all in the program. But they're either they're either too young or too too wild. Like Iwasa, the Japanese driver, is very good. He's in his first year and he's impressed me. And you know, the other question is: is there room for two Japanese drivers in the Red Bull program? So. Hang on, it's not a sitcom, Joe. You can have more than one of each. No, you can't because you've got four drives on offer in the whole world in the Red Bull teams. You've got Red Bull Racing and you have Alpha Tori. Now, you've already got one Japanese driver in one of the Alpha Tories. Are you going to have two Japanese drivers? And the answer is probably not. So that's a bit complicated. Um, anyway, there's also the Lawsons and Schmorsons and Blawsons and all these sort of, you know, people in the middle of the Red Bull program who haven't quite done enough. And also we've got, what's happened is we've got a whole bunch of new boys who've arrived um, and some have proved themselves and some haven't. Now, Hauger has looked very good. He's a Red Bull driver, but he hasn't looked very good this year. So, you know, at the moment they're sort of, they don't have an immediately obvious person to step in if they need one. Now, that's why they don't want to let Pierre Gasly go because Mm. Pierre Gasly can step in. If, if, Max Verstappen slips on a banana skin and breaks his leg, um, which is entirely possible. I don't know if he eats bananas or not, but whatever. Well, I mean, it's you happened. Know. Look at Schumacher. You know, he did the same thing, didn't he? And uh, he broke his leg well, one season. It happens. Uh, look at look at Alex Albon Ooh, last yes, week. Potentially, you know, yes, somebody, get, somebody steps in and replaces him. Get so, well soon, Alex. You know, we we they need to have somebody who's good enough to do that. And so Red Bull's got Pierre Gasly there until the end of next year in a position where he can do that. They don't want to let him go because that would be a a, a difficult thing to replace because they don't. Uh, Sunoda's very quick, but he's a bit all over the shop, isn't he? 
Yeah, but it feels like we'd hear less of the erraticness of Sonoda now and we hear less about, oh, lack of discipline or bad radio calls. It does feel like he's kind of feet under the table a bit more, no? Mm, no. He's, oh. still, he's still all over the place in races. But he's the thing is, he's he's quick and that's important. Now, if he can if he can get it all together, that's fine. Anyway, to go back to the question, we have the other young driver programs, Ferrari, have ended up with losing most of their good blokes or finding their good blokes aren't good enough or finding their good blokes are Russian, which doesn't help. Um, and so they're sort of stuck uh, yeah. with Giovinazzi at the moment. He's about the only one left, I think, because yeah. Callum Eilert's in the US and and Robert Schwarzman um, will get some chances yeah. uh, for FP1s. But to be honest, there's no great... Um, no. There's no, there's no great instant replacement at Ferrari because they seem to have lost interest in Mick Schumacher. Nah, there's a, see, there's a question about Mick Schumacher on the way down. And as I find I'm sure it, there is. As, <laughs> as, as I find it, I will just say that like, I actually quite like Giovinazzi, but I don't think it's unfair to say that it feels like an uninspiring choice. That's, that's fair enough. But the, the point is you don't necessarily, if you haven't got the latest new megastar, you don't necessarily want the latest new non-megastar and have to find out the hard way that he's not a megastar. You want to have somebody who you know is pretty much okay, but, you know, does the job. So these are the choices that team principals have to make. Anyway, go back to the other. I will do, yeah. Because yeah. we haven't finished the, the junior team thing No, I know. And G- I'll just say, but, G- that's no disrespect to Giovinazzi. I think you go in, you probably know what you're getting and he's going to mm, do a job. Yeah, pretty pretty much. Matthew pretty much. Cottrell's question there, we'll divert slightly again, was what are Mick Schumacher's best chances of being on the grid in 2023? Is he still associated with the Ferrari Driver Academy? And if not, why demands Matthew Cottrell? Cottrell. Well, you have to ask Ferrari that question, but the answer is no, he's not. And his best chance of getting on the grid right now is probably Stefano Domenicali saying, we need a German, but nobody's right. going to listen to him um, because we don't really need a German. Um, the Germans will watch F1 without a German driver. The Germans aren't watching F1 anyway really? at the moment. It's No, it's because they, they turned it over to pay television and they lost a huge number of viewers, mm-hmm. as you do when you turn it over pay television you, know, yep. you you make more money and that reflects in all the financial <laughs> yeah, results yeah. but you lose you lose the number of the, the big numbers of people who used to be there yeah i'm crying so, in uk over that as well don't yeah, worry about well, everybody yeah. in every country in europe they're crying over it. it's just a a move that's inevitable probably in the history of television which is you know why should anything be free uh is a, is a very sound argument um but it's, it has been for years, and that's why people are upset about it. Younger generations seem to be more willing to pay for sport than the older generation. Um, but the older generation is not the future of Formula One, is it? I will say I will pay, happily pay for Formula One. So if the people of Formula One are listening before they do their next big TV deal, I object to having to buy a whole cable package just for the one channel I want. It, you can charge me pretty much anything you want all the way up to sky tv prices and i'll pay it just just for your reference f1 tv if they give me a streaming over the top service i'll bite their hand off for it because that's the only thing i want cable for yeah but ultimately if you if you if you look at the overall scheme of things uh over the top streaming services are the future they're the way to go but you need to build up the audience and you need to have people uh having a way to see what it's all about because if you don't know anything about racing why on earth would you pay all that money 
so sometimes it's good to have a few races that are that that are live and free mm. which is why channel 4 exists um it's basically to help feed sky and in germany rtl does four races to help feed sky germany but you know ultimately that's still got a middleman if you take out the middleman with the f1 streaming service at the moment they're using sky commentary and all the rest of it to to cut their overheads i suppose but if you can charge everybody in the world who watches formula one five pounds per race or whatever the number is um you start doing the numbers and the profits of Formula One go through the roof, absolutely double, treble, quadruple what they are today. And, and right now they're doing very well. So, but not, necess- not necessarily from streaming, from other things as well. But along the way, that's a huge growth market that will happen one day. Interesting take from Joe Saywood. Whisper Films are the gateway drug to Sky F1. Yeah, yeah. that's about right. Okay. Uh, if, I, if I had an up-and-coming young driver in my stable, how would I make them a junior driver. How does one get to be a Red Bull junior or a Ferrari junior? Well, you can't make them. Red Bull comes to you and says, we want that kid. Ah, and they do. And that, does that feel like a meritocracy? So yeah, yeah, that's what that's what happens. It ha- Well, it is a meritocracy. Um, within exceptions, it's a meritocracy. The exceptions are obviously things that would make me unpopular to say out loud, but, you know, sometimes they pick people for the wrong reasons. But... Um, uh, if only to sort of tick boxes on quotas and things like that. But usually speaking, you go for the best. Yeah. You go for the best drivers available. And, and what sort of level? Because you're going to have to be wealthy enough to be spotted, and for Red Bull to say we want that kid. Where where do you think I have to place my driver to be seen and picked up for a junior program? International karting. International karting. Really? Oh, yeah. So no, the, you've got you've got to be you've got to be. Uh, well, actually, you don't even have to be international karting. If you're really good and someone spots you in national karting, word will mm. get out on you and you you could be picked up. And if you look at the moment, Mercedes is is always watching the karting world. McLaren's watching karting. Mm. Alpine, don't know, but probably. Mm. Um, now, all these people are watching the karting because that's where the new stars come from. Now, if you look at the cost of karting these days, it is kind of crazy. Yes. But, um you know, it's you. It's never been a cheap sport. So, but it's it, is it any different to horse riding? You know, if you want to be an Olympic dressage rider, you've got to have a horse that'll do. do dressage. Yeah. Well, some people do, but yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, having owned a dressage horse once in my life, um, I can tell you they're very expensive and they cost a fortune to feed. Mm. And and you have to chase them around when they escape as well, which is boring. <laughs> that's a great question from ken thank you ken you've led us you've led us down a merry path i think <laughs> i'll move on down the mailbag actually someone in our patron slack chat has just said just to cheer up uncle joe not that he needs cheering up i've added the green book or green notebook rss feed to my reader so thank you very much to missed apex of course you do a, a blog called the green book is that right is that what you call it the green book no it's called i do a regular article on my blog green notebook called the green notebook ah. which the green notebook is he confused me there but the it's the notebook. it's the book you note things down in and turn into a blog and uh, i like it because it is a, it's a long read it's a get lost in it read it's very good journalism and also just a, a bit of a good story as well there's the green notebook itself everyone and actually i'm running out i need to get a new one okay. so, so go but and subscribe yes yeah, it's, it's the notes and i turn the notes into an article and i usually have a little bit of a a travelogue there to tell the world what it's all about as well. 
Yeah, so, I, I but do, that's on JoeBlogsF1.com. I do feel like is, I'm transported a little bit into your world when you write those blogs. So that's, that's that's good. That's what you're supposed to be. Yes. Yeah, it's more than just here's the thing that happened today, which is what a lot of of journalism is, and there's a place for that reporting. But Uncle Joe also does some storytelling as well. So let's get on with the questions from Gene Davis. He says, "Where does Mister Saywood, ooh, very formal, with his long perspective on Formula One?" placed this season by Max Verstappen and Red Bull among the dominant car driver performances that he has covered? Good question, Gene. Uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive one, although to be fair, Ferrari have kind of given it to... Um, sorry, I don't mm. wish to make you choke on your coffee, but... <laughs> You're right, though. And I, know, yeah. and I know that people down in Italy will complain about me saying it, but the fact is that Ferrari has a quick car and they've wasted it. Um, now, they don't have quite as quick a car in race trim as they do in qualifying, so let's qualify that. But they've made so many mistakes with strategies and pit stops, and it's just been it's just not been very good. And, mm. um, you know, Red Bull have, have, uh, have benefited from that. It, it helps, obviously, that Mercedes um, produced a car that isn't really very good. Mm. And um, so, you know, you've, you've sort of got the means to... Uh, turn around the the trends of recent years, mainly because Mercedes have, have not done the job. That is interesting because in previous dominant seasons, like say the very recent Mercedes domination, there wasn't the potential in the chasing cars to to catch them until like 2017, 2018, where Ferrari had a shot. Here, you have two teams where Ferrari actually had a car to challenge. Mercedes definitely have the potential to pull out a challenging car yet both teams fell short. But I don't think that diminishes the domination in any way because Red Bull have been, have been near perfect. It, 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 does, it does diminish the domination because domination comes from having a bunch of poor rivals. Mm. Um, so you can say in some years uh, that you know, when you're winning and you're beating the opposition and they're good, is obviously a stronger year than when you're beating the opposition and they're bad. So it is... And it changes all the time as well, you have to say, because the, the cycles of success and failure in Formula One are becoming longer as as time goes by because it, it's just mm. such a much more complicated business. In the old days, you'd have a new sort of set of dominant people in two or three years and you'd go up and down and up and down. But nowadays, it's sort of five to six years, um, which started with the Red Bull era, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so a Red Bull would could have been dominating for five years if they'd have picked up the 2009 championship that you could have been looking back at a five-year domination. The Mercedes one was definitely, I can imagine even the organizations and probably Mercedes themselves were feeling the fact that they were part of such a long dominating period from, you know, they must've felt that internally as well. Uh, Yes. No. I mean, the thing about Mercedes, which is remarkable is that they have this consistent reinvention going on to make sure they don't get complacent. Um, and yet, having said that, they haven't done the goods. I haven't delivered the goods this year. So it's just the way it is sometimes, and you just have to wait and see. And the, But the best seasons are always in the changeovers between one dominant force and another dominant force, or maybe even sometimes three dominant forces that all come together. I mean, we've had some fantastic seasons in the past. My favourite, I think, being 1982, when there were something like 13 different winners from six or seven teams i suppose and it was just they were just all sort of sorting it all out was that know? rosberg rosberg championship 82 he was he was a champion oh. with one race victory 
Nice trivia knowledge from me there. Why, why didn't that question come up in the quiz, Catman? I would have known <laughs> that one. I would have got that one, Joe. I would have got you that would. one. You would. You have to name the race as well, and I'll be impressed. Spa? No. I took a punt. What was it? It was a Swiss Grand Prix in uh, Dijon that he won. I didn't even remember that there was a Swiss Grand Prix because I was only one year old. But it doesn't matter. You can read books. That's true. <laughs> read. I haven't read a book since Netflix got good. Let's move on to... Thank you, Jean, for that question. Oh, a Dutch Grand Prix question here. This is from... Oh, I'm so apologies. I'll pick up who it's from in a second. Uh, but he says, being Dutch, I was at Zandvoort for two days. Uh, he said, my, my dad wasn't overly impressed He's a seasoned F1 visitor, but it was madness out there. He had to wear earplugs, not because of the engine noise, but because of the music. Insane festivals meets football meets King's Day party, cafes, and a tiny bit of racing. Is that the impression you got as well, Joe? Yep. We were walking up and down the grid with this thumping disco music going on, and nobody could talk to each other. And it was like, (laughs) why are they doing this? You know, I mean, I get, I mean, half the grandstand were probably drunk anyway. Um, and maybe they couldn't hear either. I don't know what it was, but it was, there is a tendency towards sort of thumping disco music, which, which Formula One group seems to think is necessary at all occasions. Um, and maybe it's because it's for a younger generation. I don't know, but maybe. I don't get the impression. Uh, I mean, the thing about the Dutch Grand Prix is, and this will probably upset some Dutch people, but what the hell I have to say anyway. About 20% of the Dutch fans are, are really racing fans and 80% of them are success chasers, I think, because an awful lot of people have no clue about racing there. And, you know, I think that's, that's part of the story. So they don't have any clue about racing. Therefore, they have no clue about how you behave at races, which is why you have all those flares going off all the time and, you know, this kind of stuff. And, um, but I think it's fair to say that because, you know, back in the day before there was Verstappen's success, the, the Dutch contingent of fans was still there, but they were much smaller. I'd argue with you a lot more if our Netherlands iTunes review average rating wasn't hovering around 2.1. I'd probably I'd probably argue a little bit more than that, Joe. <laughs> well, I mean, it happens. You have There are only certain drivers who have armies of people who follow them. And Verstappen's army is the most... Uh, mobile of all the, the 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 followings I've ever seen. I mean, Mansell had his own little army of Red Five followers, but no, no none of them ever went to the French Grand Prix. Uh, Michael Schumacher had an army of campervan mm. people with mullets um, and beer in one hand and a mullet sort of hanging up down their back, and they 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 went to ones you could drive to in campervans. Okay, um, and Max's people will go everywhere in the world. It's amazing. So they don't have they don't have mullets, but they a lot of them have beer in one hand. Yes. To be clear, we've got loads of really really nice Dutch Missed Apex fans. Uh, sorry, F one fans that listen to Missed Apex that are also Patreon supporters and that are lovely to us and very very knowledgeable about racing. But I think you're they right. Are. There they is are. certainly a, a newer kind of bandwagon of, of of people enjoying the sport. You know, we can't gatekeep in what way you should enjoy the sport. No, no, well, and we shouldn't gatekeep. I mean, gatekeep. I mean, mm. it's like when we go to the States, we've, we've got a whole new generation of fans and they all scream when they see a star. Teenage girls and middle-aged women. I mean, it's like the Beatles when you go over. The, Miami was just a complete zoo of these new fans, but mm. I don't have a problem with that because grumpy old men are not going to keep the sport going. So... <laughs> It's good. It's good that we don't we don't have just grumpy old men grunting as a star goes by. You know, 
But, you know, sometimes they get a little bit overexcited, yeah. some of these Americans. So uh, it was Baz that sent that email, but that wasn't actually the gist of his question. He was he's he's asserting, Joe, he says F1 needs backmarkers as much as it needs front run- runners. I'm not saying I would like to go back to the times of pre-qualifying. I would. But wouldn't it be great to see four or even six extra cars? 26 seems fair to me. Young talent would then have the possibility to get racing miles. What young talent has the has the possibility to get racing miles, and you don't need the extra cars because Ooh. extra cars no extra cars have all kinds of downsides to them as well, which is the teams go bust. You have to you have to spread the money around between more people if you want them not to go bust. Um, right now we have we have ten solid teams, all with good infrastructure. If we have three new ones, they're not going to be anything like as good as the ones there, and the chances are they won't survive. So, and as to whether or not young drivers get the chance, you now have these programs going on where they can they can drive thousands of kilometers in one year old cars, which is fine. That works okay. So I don't see the need for it. You also have things like every racetrack would have to have more pit garages built. You'd have to have more emissions because flying all this stuff around the world would have six more cars. There's all kinds of elements to it where 20 is is the right number. And uh, I don't see the point in adding three more weak ones to that. Well, it's just more F1 cars, Joe. I'm really the, the, disappointed. More, more F1 cars. More F1 cars get in the way when the fast ones are lapping I... as well. You know, cause races to be take out the leader when he's going past some some useless tin box that's just sort of trundling down the middle of the road. So uh, well, it's just silly. You I know? didn't mind seeing the battle between Marussia and, and Caterham and the the drama of who would get that point and end up getting you know into that tier of the prize money. I, I thought that was all right, and there was good. You can have that with Williams. <laughs> you know that, that it's just it's the same thing it's just mm. you're, you're just you're looking for the perfect number and the perfect number i think is 20 because it's just easier to move 20 things around the world and it's and it's a good balance of everything and if you're any good um mm. you know you'll move up the order it's not about it's not about it's good to have 20 solid teams sorry 10 solid teams we haven't had that mm. in the past and this is now a situation where nobody, you know, the, the last one who looked ridiculous, it was because the owner was, was you know, trying to stay out of jail and hadn't got any money to, to, and so he sold out. But nobody now is struggling to survive financially. Okay, lawyers happy. No names, no names were mentioned. That's good. Okay, um, but well, it's, it's true today, and I'll <laughs> say the name if you like. No, it's not that well, hard. No, we're I say let's move on. There's so many questions. Thank you, Baz, for that. And also, Baz mentioned that Nick is not pronounced Nick. It's pronounced like Greek. So, Nick. So, we should be saying Nick de Vries. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ian Connell's got a question that's non-pronunciation related. It is safety car related. So just... I've I've said my piece on safety cars. I'm not going to say anything more, mm-hmm. but I am mm-hmm. going to read his question. I've got no great love for Formula E racing, but I do think the Formula E safety car policy is a good one. If the safety car is out for a number of laps, they extend the race distance by a number of, of laps, not necessarily all of it. Teams can then take the risk of uh, how much extra fuel, or I guess in it, Formula E, yeah, that's not a consideration. No, they run out of battery power. Out of battery. It's a daft idea, isn't so, it? To carry out. Okay, so currently they, they all don't... break down because the safety car period was extended. That doesn't make any sense. But Ian is pointing out that currently F1 cars don't run with full tanks. So there would be the capacity to carry extra extra fuel. Look, and this is all on the assumption that people don't want it to end under the safety car. I personally don't have a problem with that. Nobody wants the any race to end under a safety car. It's boring. Nobody wants that. Having said that, there are situations where it has to happen. And there is no justification for calling a red flag and you know, sort no. of putting on something. Playground garbage. Well, it, it's just it's just basically creating an un, an artificial showdown, which serves, you know, NASCAR do that all the time. You know, mm. let's throw a yellow for debris on the back sta- you know, on, on on the back straightaway. And then they pretend it's all, and they they have a great finish, and everyone goes, "Gee, wasn't that exciting?" But nobody says, "Well, actually, it's a load of old rubbish," because they just crunched all the cars together for the last couple of laps. Um, it depends what you want in racing, you know. Uh, Formula One's all about, in theory, all about the purity of racing. I don't like the safety car rules as they are now, simply because the the leader loses his advantage, and the man behind gains. Mm. The, the I mean, I've been saying this. Ever since Abu Dhabi, the, the yeah. fault in Abu Dhabi was the, the safety car rules. It's not the way the race director behaved. This time, the race Ooh, director followed. Okay. It was quite funny yeah. uh, in, in, in Monza because all the people who complained about, you know, the safety car should have done, I'm oh, sorry, the race director mm. should have done this in Abu Dhabi weren't able to complain this time because they followed the rules and it no. made it very dull. Yeah, no, no. But so, I, I, I'd rather have the odd nil-nil than Abu Dhabi. Uh, but an interesting point with well the... Abu Dhabi the fault is not in the race director the fault is in the the safety car okay I don't agree but I'm not going to get into I know it. you don't <laughs> have to agree but I'm just saying that's my own take of it okay okay and um... people don't agree with me but that's my feeling I don't like the safety car because it's unfair Joe at vir- internet virtual virtual safety car I yeah. don't mind the virtual safety car no I think I I do I do have some um some agreement except with you, there. you can't trust the yeah. drivers to to stay within the the numbers you know, they're always trying to find an advantage. Interesting strategical thing, which is that 
Vettel's advantage in 2013 was so great that they would pull up, uh, pull out a whole pit stop advantage. So they always had a pit stop advantage and they were so dominant, it didn't matter. Mercedes and, and Lewis Hamilton, say 2017, 2018, he would always just pull like five or six seconds ahead and leave himself that buffer. Now, I was always told the reason for that was if there was a safety car, you don't want to overuse your tyres. So you saying the guy who's pulled out a big lead then loses all of that advantage. Isn't it part of the modern F1 strategy to go, well, don't build up a massive lead because you're using up tyres and there might be a safety car? Uh, You can argue all kinds of where you like, but the fact is race car drivers go as fast as they consider it necessary to be. So who, who decides, you know, if they're going fast enough or, I mean, I like to think they're all going to the maximum. And to be honest, a lot of them are going to the maximum all the time. So, mm. Okay. Let's ask some uh, team priority questions then. We've got two related questions from Brendan and from Phil. Let's start, start with Brendan's one. It seems like Perez has been underperforming lately in the Red Bull with Mercedes having two number one drivers capable of beating each other. This leaves Red Bull vulnerable in the Constructors' Championship once Mercedes gets their car on pace, I'm assuming means next year. How much of a leash does Perez have if he keeps his recent performance before Red Bull gets someone like Lando for the for the second seat? Do they have a desire for two number ones? And then there's a related question with Mercedes. But, you know, you know, what's your take on on Red Bull? They seem happy with what they've I got. Don't, I don't think anyone's holding Sergio Perez back apart from Sergio Perez, to be honest. So he's on un, he's underperforming rather a lot, I think. So, so Red Bull must be unhappy um, then. Not necessarily, because you don't want to upset the equilibrium of your number one driver. So having a bloke who's nearly there is fine. You don't need to have Mm. somebody who's definitely going to upset the apple cart. And Ferrari's getting into that territory of, of, you know, Charles is obviously a quick driver and ultimately the quicker of the two. But, you know, they've, they've messed him around so much that, um, you know, Carlos is, is up there on, in the points, uh, fight. Um, and you know, you can create situations that are not healthy by doing that sort of stuff. So while it's, while it's great to say, yes, we've got two number one drivers, the reality is always that it's best not to have two number one drivers because you end up with them slaughtering each other. Yeah. I, I would never have, but two that's number in ones. the, that's in the ultimately pragmatic mm. arguments, you know, in, in the, in the, in the professional, the professional, in the, in the, um, uh, in the romantic fan approach of always having, you know, uh, two drivers in the same car battling for glory, that's great. But at the end of the day, you've got to take into account the commercial realities as well, which is you don't want your two drivers colliding and somebody else going through to win. What about if you have this this uh, a cap on the money you can spend during the course of the race? Presumably that includes upgrades as well. If I was a team boss, I would give all the upgrades to my number one driver and halfway through the season, you would just stop giving them to your number two. Uh, yes and no, but, you know, I, I don't think it's good to have a demotivated second driver either. So you've got to keep people mm. uh, hungry. You've got to pe- keep people excited. So I think the best thing is to give them all the same as much as possible and let them sort it out among themselves. So, uh, I, you know, but one has to be pragmatic about these things. So I, a lot of these arguments about budget cap are put forward by people who just want to find any which way to increase the amount of money they're allowed to spend because they've got the money. 
So that's enough. We're talking mm. about Christian Horner, you know, fundamentally. He'll always be arguing, although he pretends not to, he'll always be arguing in favour of having more money because he has more money. He has endless money to spend. Limitless money. So, yeah. So the budget cap is specifically aimed at teams like Red Bull and Mercedes. Has it had an impact? And Ferrari as well. Of course it's had an impact because they've had to slim down and do stuff. But, you know, it is... We'll see if it ultimately makes any difference over time. We'll see if it helps Alpine climb closer up next year, you know, because you've also got to, it's not just about money. You've also got to use your money in a sensible way. You can be a multi-billionaire. Let's not name names. You can be a multi-billionaire who has a racing team um, and it can be a complete disaster if you hire the wrong people. Mm. Come on. Oh, oh yeah. No, we, we all know. Okay. You're talking about Aston Martin, Joe. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. There's sev- there, there are several of them at the moment who fit <laughs> okay. that criteria. So, yeah. Were you um, surprised, you Joe? Are. Were you surprised at the hiring of Alonso? Because that sounds like a match made in hell, honestly. I cannot see any way that that works out. It is It is a match made in hell, which why it's, which is why Felipe Drukovic is a clever man. Because he's got a reserve drive with the team that will implode one way or the other. F3 so he's champion, virtually yeah. guaranteed himself... Uh, He's virtually guaranteed himself a race drive within a year or two by being in the right place at the right time, just being able to watch this conflagration happen. Um, why did, why did Falonzo, Falonzo, Fernando, Teflonzo, whatever he's called, <laughs> why did he do it? Well, because ultimately it's not about money. It's about respect. Mm-hmm. And he didn't feel that Alpine was being respectful enough for a man of his extraordinary achievement brackets, two world championships when he should have been five. Um, but you know, they, they were only willing to offer him a little bit of what he wanted. And so somebody who offered him the whole lot of what he wanted, he, he'd just go and drive for them. But is he going to win the world championship? Is he going to win races with Aston Martin? What if he's really good? And I think he's probably really good still. Like, isn't that, isn't yeah, yeah, that... But if your car's no good, isn't that if you're really good? Because it'll be like, you know, driving Noddy's car at the back of a Grand Prix, won't it? Yeah, but what if, like, he's just making Lance look, like, fully ordinary? Surely that's against the aims of Project Stroll. Yes. Oh. Which is why it's staffed. It, yeah. Unless, of course, you know, Daddy Stroll is really secretly plotting against his own son, which isn't... <laughs> it's all rubbish, or or he it? just has a lot the, of belief uh, uh, in his son. Uh, he, yes, he believes mm. that his son is a world champion, and, and it seems like nobody can convince him otherwise at the moment. However, I have a vague suspicion that Fernando Alonso might be able to convince him of this because Fernando Alonso is you know, proper, proper old-school racing driver of the highest order. And the first time that Lance Stroll beats Fernando Alonso, you can bet he's going to start grumbling in the corner about Lance having better equipment and blowing the team up because that's what Fernando does best. Amazing. Fernando is a team destroyer. Let's get off the fence, Joe. Please. Please. He's <laughs> wasting everyone's time being all neutral. Um, we've got a question that follows on the Perez one from Phil McWilliam. Thank you for writing in, Phil. Can you ask our favourite F1 journalist, that's you, Joe, if he thinks Mercedes have shot themselves in the foot by by signing George Russell, if they produce a winning car next year capable of fighting, George is so close, or dare I say just as good as Lewis, that they'll take too many points off each other, which will play into the hands of the others. Keep up the good work. Kind regards from Phil. Yes, that's entirely possible. Mm. But that's what 
proper racing teams do. Williams lost the world championship back in the 1980s by having Mansell and Piquet fighting one another, and Alain Prost nipped through the middle and won the championship. 2007. That's the price you pay for... Yeah. You what? Sorry, we've got a slight lag, Joe. I'm not meaning to interrupt you. Um, 2007 as well. No, I was... Well, yeah, I was going to say 1987 or 6 or whatever year it was. I can't even remember, but it's one of those... You know, the fact is that if you if you allow your two drivers to race one another, you are opening up the way for somebody else to go between them and win. And, you know, this is what Ferrari, uh, under the efficient Mr. Todd, achieved. They they had a clear number two driver and pretended they didn't until it became obvious they did. Um, and Michael Schumacher, and, and, and he was there to win. So, you know, I don't think that's as sporting as, as having... Um, two number one drivers fighting each other. But, you know, Mr. Todd has a, had a history of that. In Peugeot on the Paris-Dakar, he tossed a coin to decide who was going to win the rally. So, you know, and, and when I shouted at him and said it was unfair, he mm-hmm. said, my job is to make sure we are the most successful possible, and that's what I'm going to do to do it, which is a perfectly understandable, I wouldn't say justifiable, but it is, f- from a corporate point of view, that's the right answer. You yelled at John Tott. Oh, many times oh. I've yelled at Jean Todd. <laughs> and he's yelled back, to be fair. But, um, you know, we've, we've had a few good fights. But our first fight was on the Paris Dakar rally over the, co- the tossing of the coin. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we've got some more questions for you, Joe. Uh, Hi, Uncle Joe, says Ivan. What do, you, what do you think is the general opinion sentiment from the other team principals regarding the whole Alpine, McLaren, Piastri situation? Particularly, and I'm glad you said this, Ivan, particularly on the loyalty aspect and how this will affect junior academies going forward. Alpine went really strong on the he should have been more loyal aspect of stuff. Like they really, like no shame, yeah, but bridges a, burnt. That's, but that's the only defence they had. Uh, you know, what, what they should have gone strong on is, um, well, if we'd made a decision, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have lost both of them. You know, if we, made, if we decided between one or the other before... Um, we did, then we would have kept one or the other. In the end, they lost both. So, uh, to be honest, it's all it's all a bunch of uh, romanticism, you know, loyalty. Mm. If you look at the great racing drivers of recent generations, um, name one who didn't break a contract. The answer is Sebastian Vettel, I suppose. But before then, Schumacher walked out on Jordan. Uh, Senna walked out on Tolman. Prost walked out on McLaren. They all broke contracts to get into a car. The only difference is that Piastri hasn't raced a Formula One car yet, Madden. where the others had. Yeah. And that tells you the way of which Piastri is viewed by lots of people, that he's actually broken a contract before he's raced. Um, and But I think, you know, I, I think that to be fair to him, um, yes, it's not, it's not necessarily... Um, good for your image to do it but you feel it's necessary to do it Mm. and that is because the team is not behaving in a way that you feel comfortable with do you you reckon yeah i was saying do you reckon piastri's management and agents and everything kind of took it took it all a little bit maybe personally that they were getting shunned getting pushed to the side getting palmed off on a williams i don't think that's true i i i I picked up i sensed i didn't know what it meant at the time but i sensed that there was the relationship was going wrong before it all blew up. Oh, no. I just sensed that things weren't 
just from things that people said along the way and the way of you know, the team was reacting with one another, I sensed that there was a sort of level of, you know, Piastri didn't know where he stood, Alonso didn't know where he stood. And that is bad. If you don't know where you stand, then you start thinking about, well, what happens if? And if you start thinking about what happens if, then you say, well, I want to protect myself about what happens if, so I'll go find something else to do. And that's what happened. And, you know, that's, it, it, it's brutal. Mm. But it's also at the same time you can understand it because, you know, what would happen if Fernando Alonso is signed for Alpine for one more year and Piastri gets to sit out a second year? Well, that's disastrous for a driver. Mm. You can't afford to have that. And that's why they never signed a contract for, to do that because they were never going to sign a contract to do that. What they signed was a heads of agreement. I don't know what that means. It means an agreement that we will discuss an agreement. Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. So what's happening is happening. He'll be lining up against Lando Norris. I don't know anything mm-hmm. about Piastri. Is he going to, is he going to fare well against Norris by mid season, by the summer break? Is he looking like he's on par? Don't know. Don't know. Um, because I think mentally his, his mental strength is extraordinary for a man his age. Piastri is a remark. I mean, it's all about success is all about your mental attitude. And he performed fall apart. So far, Lando's had it relatively easy at McLaren. Um, but we'll have to see how it comes out in the end. I mean, Daniel Ricciardo has been all over the place and nobody's nobody can understand why. And the answer has to be in his head. Joe, we are losing connection as the clouds drift over your rural surroundings because you live on a vast estate in a woodland surrounded by by deer and horses, uh, which isn't always the most conducive for amazing broadband. So before we lose you, let's make sure that people know where to follow you, at Joe Sayward on Twitter, and you do a bunch of other things like your blog, and you run a magazine called GP Plus Magazine, which is hand-carved on a wax tablet and delivered on a gold cushion to everybody personally. Well, it is actually a PDF. It's not paper. You know, we're not we're not chopping down trees to make it happen. But you can get the whole story of a race weekend six hours after the race ends and it's brilliant. Even though, you know, I, I say that obviously I'm biased, but it is <laughs> nobody it's else brilliant. has has ever achieved doing it. Nobody else has, has even tried to do it because it's almost impossible to do. But we do it every race. So Well, Chris Medlin and, said it's more important to be right than first, and there's you just rushing them out, Joe. Yeah, but we, we're right and first. Okay, that's good. I'm going to try that tactic on Mr. Apex. I'm going to go, listen to us. We're brilliant. I'm just going to flat out say it. I like it. I've learned from you there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go and follow Joe at Joe Say. We're going to put the links in the show notes to all of his stuff. Uh, we're going to hook up a live audience with Joe where you can jump on a Zoom call and ask him questions in person and hang out for uh, for a small fee. And we're going to do that an, uh, an evening uh, in the near future as well to emulate the live audiences that joe does joe when's your next live audience where we can actually go and see you in person um that's a very good question at the moment it will probably be uh the end of the season because one of the hardest things is to find a venue that's willing to uh accept a sensible amount of money they all want far too much um and it becomes impossible to do uh, it's a shame so, they're good they're fun um, I'm all... yeah i know they're great fun to yeah. do as well and i enjoy them but but the venues are greedy and and formula one is living in a very greedy world at the moment mm. where everywhere we go 
And we're seeing it with uh, airline prices, car hire prices, hotel prices. Everything's off the clock everywhere. So if you try and rent a um, a venue um, at a race these days, they want more money than you're actually going to make. So it just doesn't make any sense to do it. Charge triple. As much as you'd it's like worth to do it. it. Uh, actually, whilst... Yeah, but whilst no, nobody will come if you charge triple because the tickets cost too much money as well. Your internet snaps back into life. So I'll just see if we can field this last one from Jasper, which says, mm-hmm. why is Ferrari maintaining Benotto? This season is obviously his responsibility. Well, that's an interesting question and one that has been asked up and down the paddock. And the answer is probably because they haven't gotten any options that you can think of. But they must not be happy, or do they think he's the man to turn it around? <laughs> well, John Elkin, who is the president of uh, Ferrari and of uh, Fiat, or whatever it's called this week, Stellantis, um, he seems to have an, a, a rather naively, which is odd talking about their boss of two car mm. companies, isn't it? But he does seem to have a sort of uh, naive view that, Benotto is the is the is the savior of mankind, um, yeah. which he's possibly the only person who thinks that way. However, he's the boss, so it, it's his it's his company, it's his money, ultimately uh, large chunks of it because he owns a big share in the company and he makes the choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't agree with them, but you know it's all very well saying get rid of Benotto. You have to find out somebody to sort of go sit at his desk who will do the job better. And that's a tough call because if you hire somebody from outside who doesn't speak Italian, you create problems. That's true, but that's not a very ringing endorsement for the squad depth at Ferrari, though, Joe. You you don't see there's an obvious person there that would step up if Bonotto just decided to retire? Nope. Oh, no, I don't see anybody there at all. Well, on that damning note, go and follow Joe. Click all the links below. Go and follow him on Twitter and uh, keep in touch and keep an eye out for the next time you can have a live or virtual audience with Joe Saywood. Uh, You've been listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We will be trying to do a mega panel phone in uh, over the course of the weekend and we'll certainly have some content for you before the Singapore Grand Prix as well. That's a late night race. We will do our race review that night though so we will watch the race we'll have an hour to get our affairs in order and then we will review it straight after the race because as we know it is more important to be first than it is to be right but wherever we see you next work hard be kind and have fun this was missed apex podcast When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.